morning, if you have your Bibles, I'd like to return to a topic that I started last week, a, a series that I began called Backstage for Christmas. And we are taking a look at some different passages of Scripture that are not necessarily associated directly with the birth narratives that are given in the Gospel of Matthew or Luke, but certainly provide to us ways in which we can better understand the truth of the season and the truth of the God that we proclaim. We live in a culture, as I mentioned last week, that many people today, even though we live in what I would consider to be a gospel-saturated country, certainly comparatively to other places in the world, that there are a majority of the population that is unclear as to who Jesus is. They're unclear as to the purpose of him coming to earth and what his life and death represented. And to us who are followers of Christ, it is the bedrock of what we understand. And so I'd like to take a passage of scripture that's found in 1 John, or excuse me, John 1. You'll get to 1 John a little bit later, but John chapter 1. And I'm going to read the first five verses to you, but honestly, I'm just reading the five verses for context because we're not going to get out of verses 1 and 2 this morning. But I would like you, if you would, please, to turn your attention. If you have your Bible, please look. If you have it on a smartphone, you can look there and, and keep it handy as we go through this. John 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made, and without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Lord, over these next few moments, I'm asking that you, through the work of your Holy Spirit, would begin to touch the hearts of each of us who are listeners. There are some powerful truths that are wrapped up in this that we desperately need not only to know, but we need to be able to fully understand in order to encompass all that Christmas is so that it does not slip by us without a deep understanding. And so lead us and guide us, I pray, in our thoughts and in our response. In Jesus' name, amen. At the time when John wrote this gospel, the faith of the believers to whom he was writing was being challenged and they were being undermined by those that opposed Christ. In fact, any biblical understanding as you read your scriptures of the first centuries of the Christian church makes it clear to us that the early believers were not enjoying a tranquil existence. In fact, to follow Jesus was be to confronted, be confronted by terror and to be confronted by all kind of animosity. And some of the things that John might have heard in preparation for the writing of this gospel, he may have heard questions from among those that would say, why is it that so few of Jesus' own people, so few of those from a Jewish background are becoming his followers? Or he might have heard questions such as, why does it seem as if those that are responding to become followers of Jesus Christ are people like fishermen or tax collectors? And it seems that you have to look really, really hard to find those that would be considered lights of their community or influential people that would follow him. 
And as I thought about that, those are not unlike the questions that we hear today as well. It was in response to that that he wrote his gospel. And in fact, he tells us in John chapter 20, verse 30, in the prologue or in the the epilogue of his book, he said, I have written this that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Now, I want you to notice that John doesn't write this and say, I'm writing it so that you can have Jesus in your heart. He said, I have written this down so that you would believe in the identity of Jesus, that he is the promised Messiah and that he is the very son of God and that believing in his identity, believing in who he is, in the historicity of him, in the identity that he brings and the provision that he brings, that then you would have life in his name. And it's important that we remind ourselves of that as we become readers of the word and studiers of the word. John was an evangelist, and so when he wrote this, his job was to to write in such a way that people that did not believe would become converts. And because of the culture of the time, he also wrote that he might encourage believers who were undergoing challenges to their faith and that they might be informed and be able to have a better defense of their faith. I know that today, seated within this room, or certainly those that may be watching us online today, that there are numbers of different things that go through your minds. There are some of you here today that are believers, but you desperately need encouragement. There are some of you today that are believers, but as all of us, when we come into the house of the Lord, there are times when the Holy Spirit needs to correct us and bring us into alignment. I also know that there are those today who are here and you do not believe but you're seeking the truth and you're at least interested. And then there are some of you that are here and you don't wanna believe and you're rather annoyed that you had to come to church today. And if you could just see all of your faces, you would recognize that from time to time, it's easy to pick out which group you're in. The wonderful thing about the word of God is that God is able to match the condition that you came into to portions of his word by which he may be able to answer your questions. One of the interesting stories that I read this week was written by an eyewitness. His name was Polycarp. He was the bishop at Smyrna, and he describes a scene as it involves John, the author of this gospel. And he was seen running from one of the central bathhouses. And as John was running, he was fleeing, and he was shouting this, let's flee lest even the bathhouse fall down because Corinthus, the enemy of the truth, is within. Now, being that I am a visual learner, I had to picture what this might have looked like in my mind because when I picture the Apostle John, the Evangelist John, I don't picture an individual who is other than a little sedate and an author, you know, probably wears glasses as he's writing and this this individual. And now Polycarp gives us this image of an event that took place where he is literally running out of a bathhouse running down the street of Ephesus in his bathing chutes. Basically what he's shouting is, I had to get out of there because I thought the roof was gonna fall in because of this man and what he believes about Jesus. Now that caused me to do a little bit of research of exactly what was it about Corinthus that made him such a danger that a roof may fall in on a bathhouse if he was even there. Here's what I discovered. The apostle Paul ran from even being near him because Corinthus believed that Jesus was not divine that he was born of a man and a woman and that his birth was natural. 
As I thought about that, I said, not a lot has changed in 20 centuries. We live in an emerging religious climate of a deconstructing faith, a social climate and a political climate that constantly is refuting the Bible. People still say today, why is it that it seems that only the unsophisticated follow Jesus and the inference is that unbelief is always on the side of the educated or the intelligent and that those of us who follow Jesus do so because of some inherent lacks within our intelligence? We come to this Christmas season and people say, do you really believe this stuff? And so the challenge remains as society asks the questions, you really don't believe that the baby that was in the manger is none other than the son of God. And honestly, today, there are probably some of you that are sitting here that don't believe that as well. And if that is true, then what we have is not Christianity, but it's a concoction of unbelief. And that's the challenge that faces us as we come to the word of God. And that's the challenge that faced John as he wrote. And so John, rather than starting with genealogies or rather than starting about birth narratives, he said, in order for me to convince my readers, I'm going to start at the very beginning. And he begins to write in a prologue that goes through 18 verses of John, the first 18 verses. And he introduces us to Jesus. And in verses 14 through 18, he introduces us to the incarnate son. In verses 6 through 13, he introduces us to him as the coming light. And in the opening five verses that we read, he introduces Jesus as the pre-existing word, the pre-existent word. So here Jesus is presented, the incarnate son, the light that's come into the world and the pre-existent word. And I want to give you three words that we're going to follow as we look at these first two verses today. We're going to look at him in terms of his eternity, in terms of his personality, and in terms of his deity. Now, I don't know about you, but how many of you have a mental picture of what you think Jesus looks like? Some of you are afraid to raise your hand. I grew up in a church where there was a picture in the foyer of Jesus with light brown hair, really well done. Jesus had great hair. Blue eyes, and he held a lamb. Any of you seen that picture? And so from my earliest childhood, I've always assumed this image of what Jesus may look like. Interesting enough, the scripture gives us absolutely no physical description of Jesus in the entire Bible, except that he got taller and he gained weight. It's all we know. He grew in stature. And I believe that the reason for that is that whatever picture you may begin to make in your mind is going to be far less than the actual glory that the father ever intended and so in John's prologue, Jesus introduced to us, first of all, in terms of his eternity. He introduces us in the very first words as in the beginning. Now, in Greek, those words are in arche. In fact, that could also be stated as before the beginning. It could be interpreted as before even time began, there was the word. 
Now, no matter how far back your mind, now I recognize that there are people that attend our church and some of students from Syracuse, are, you're, you're unbelievably brilliant. Some of you are studying science and, and medicine and physicists and astrophysics and some of you are in solid geology. And when you begin to think back about what the history of the earth and the world look like, your minds can go back 100 million light years. And then there are people like me that when we begin to make our way backwards, I get about 100 yards and my mind gets a little bit muddled. Regardless of where you may fit within that scale, wherever you go to when you think of the beginning, you will find in whatever model that the incarnate Son of God, Jesus, was there first. He is the preexistent Word. And an ancient theologian, Anathathias, gave us this classic line. There never was when he was not. There never was when he was not. He was creator, but he was uncreated. And if you don't think this morning that that point is important, then you have never had a conversation with a Unitarian or a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon because it is at this point that every deviant cult moves away from Orthodox Christianity. This is absolutely central to the Christian faith. Before the beginning, Jesus is present as the Lord of eternity. Jesus preexisted time with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. In the very beginning was the Word. And he is introduced to us here with a very interesting term, the word. How many of you know words are important? Some of you can sit quietly and people can think they know what you're thinking. It's not till you open your mouth and begin to communicate that we actually know what's going on in your thought process. Words are important. It's the way that we communicate. It's the way that we reveal what's going on. And John, in a masterful way, chooses to use a word in which the Greeks would know it as logos. It's familiar both to the Greeks and to the Hebrews. To the Hebrews, when they would hear that in the beginning is logos, or in the beginning was the word, their minds would instantly go back to the beginning of Genesis. And they would understand from the creation account. And they would be reminded that the word is the creative agent of the Godhead. In Genesis 1-3, God said... Let there be light, and there was light. He spoke, and his word was the creative agent. The psalmist writes in Psalm 33, 6, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, their starry hosts, by the breath of his mouth. It was as if the stars didn't even need the whole word. He just... And the stars went into existence. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand this. What biblical Christianity is conveying is that the child in the manger at Bethlehem is none other than the Son of God incarnate. Remember, it's the Son of God that became incarnate. It wasn't Father God that became incarnate. It wasn't the Holy Spirit that became incarnate. It was the Son of God that became incarnated. But that this Son, 
This child in the manger was responsible for putting the very stars in the sky, including the star that led the wise men to find him and to come and worship him. The Christian claim is that this child in the manger, the infant of Mary, the outcast, the stranger, is none other than the Lord of eternity who always was and always existed. I read an interesting account from one of the writers that was trying to talk about who the wise men that came from the east might be. And, and this particular writer indicated he thought that they might have been Chinese wise men that had traveled to come and see him. And as he was going through the aspect of bearing that out, he was talking about the one of the reasons he believed they may have been Chinese is because it took them two years to get there. If they'd come from the east like Babylon is in the east, he said, it would have been a really, really sick and wounded camel to take two years to get from Babylon to Bethlehem. And he said, wouldn't it have been something if these wise men came from China and they come bringing their gifts and they bow and they worship the king of the Lord who is the Lord of all of the nations and they gathered at his feet. What a wonderful thought. And as he goes through all that at the end, he says, I can't prove it, but you can't prove it's not true. Interesting things to think about. But what we do know is the one that they came to worship is the one that breathed the star into the sky for them to begin to follow it so that they could find him and worship him. Friends, one of the reasons that our friends and neighbors largely ignore Christianity is not because they have considered it and found it untrue. It's because they regard it as completely trivial, as completely unimportant, as completely something that is outside the range of their life. And one of the reasons that our culture regards the story as trivial is because we as believers in many cases have bent over backwards trying to accommodate them in their unbelief, trying to explain away the power of scripture in ways that maybe they could understand and believe. And many who call themselves Christians are not sure what we really believe as it relates to the hard parts of Scripture. But can I tell you something? It's in the hard parts of Scripture that all the good stuff is found. It's in the hard parts of Scripture where the glory of the Lord is displayed. The whole starry host was created by the breath of his mouth, by the word, the heavens were created. And John says, in the beginning, in Arche, was the Logos. And under the direction of the Holy Spirit begins in this way. And he employs this word Logos because he understood both Hebrews and Greeks would be able to get it. And it's unique capacity to ultimately show the self-disclosure of the person of the Son of God. The second thing that takes place within this verse is it describes Christ's personality. When the scripture says, and the word was with God. Now I've had conversations with those that don't believe that Jesus was God. And this is one of the verses they run to. They said, well, it says in John 1, 1, that he was with God. In other words, he wasn't really God. He was just with him. And that is a complete misunderstanding of the way that this verse is to be interpreted. You see, when he's addressing the phrase was with God, 
It is talking about a distinction in the Trinity, a distinction between the three members, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Understanding that within this, there's an understanding that description is they are co-equal and they are co-eternal. In fact, 19th century commentator Thomas Whitelaw says this, the theme of the evangelist discourse was not a metaphysical abstraction or a poetical personification, but a veritable person. Now, let me just try to take this down into something that we can understand. There are so many in our world today that believe that God is a concept. And as such, they can choose whatever concept of God they want. And that is how so many different theologies are created. And John presents the material in his gospel in a way he says, I'm not talking about an abstract idea. I'm not talking about God as a concept. I'm not pulling a Disney and taking a character which with I'm going to personify a myth. He said, what I am talking about here is an actual, veritable person. And then he goes on in the first letter that he writes in 1 John 1, 1 to say this. That which was from the beginning in RK, back before the beginning, which we have heard, he said, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. Now, if you're an unbeliever today, or if you are skeptical about these things and you read this, you only have one of two options. You either conclude that John is a flat out liar, or you have to come to the conclusion that maybe he's telling the truth. I have a challenge for you that are skeptical. I have a challenge for you that may be an unbeliever here today, and that is this. I would like you over the next 14 days before Christmas comes to find some alone time and do me a favor and read one of the gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. We're talking about John. You may want to start there. Because you see, the claim of Christianity is that this book is alive. And that when you read it under the direction of God, something is going to happen within you and to you. And although you may not understand the book, the book understands you. So why not read a gospel? In fact, here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to start with this prayer. God, Dement told me to do this. I don't understand this, but I'm going to read a gospel. And before I do, if you are God and Jesus is real, then I presume that it's possible for you to reveal yourself to me. And if you do, if you make yourself known to me, then I will believe you and I will trust you and I will follow you all the days of my life. I challenge you if you're a skeptic. I challenge you if you're an unbeliever to try that and watch what God does. You see, many who have taken that challenge have come to say with John, the life appeared and we have seen it and testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father has appeared to us. Now in this, I want to give you just a little bit of a Greek lesson. And some of you are going to love this and some of you are going to hate it. John's uses of tenses here is masterful. 
because he uses the imperfect tense when he's describing the pre-existent location of God. When he says he was with God, was with God. He's talking about the fact that in, in this term I'm using, he has always been with God. He is part of God. But when he says that he became man or that he has appeared, he changes the way that he describes those and he uses the aorist or the punctiliar tense, making the point very, very clear. Listen to this. Although it says that he became in a moment flesh, you will notice in scripture, it never says that he became God. He always was God. He became flesh. That which he was not in a moment, in a decisive moment in time, all the existence and all the expressions of his pre-existing state in the imperfect tense, he was with God, he was with God, he was with God, and he became flesh in a moment of time. Now, if you want to get excited about something, dear friends, get excited about this. The fact of the matter is that generations are growing up underneath us who have no concept of who Jesus is and why he came and why it even matters. Because our contemporary Christianity has been reduced to questions such as this. If I follow him, how much faith do I need to get rich? How do I need to follow him so that I can feel good and I can always be healthy? Or how do I need to follow him so that he gives me purpose and he can bless me? And how do I keep my marriage together? And how do I raise my teenage kids? None of these things may be bad in themselves, but we've lost the awe of the preexistent God being in a moment made flesh and deposited on this earth with us. But if the issue here is this, the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us, we proclaim to you that we have seen and heard so that you may also have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we move into this theme that says, and the word was with God. Listen closely. It comes from the Greek word prostantheon, which literally means... That the word was inclined toward God. That the son, if you like, was inclined toward the father and the Holy Spirit inclined toward the son. And the best way to describe this, and it's, it's a very difficult word to describe, would be that they put their heads together and leaned against each other. The unity of the Trinity in close fellowship together, inclined towards one another. The interesting thing is that God is sufficient in and of himself and he does not need us. He was perfectly content within the Trinity and in that towardsness with one another in a way that we can never fully grasp. But the members of the Trinity looked at the condition of mankind and the father determined that the son would go on a rescue mission. Down into time, he who has always been will come in a moment in time and in doing that, give up the glory of the unity that he has experienced for the purpose of namely becoming human. And as a result of that, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And think about this, the towardness, the physical unity of the Trinity of the Lord was disrupted. We have often thought particularly at Easter time, when Jesus is hanging on the cross, 
And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We've often thought that that was the interruption of the Trinity. No. The interruption of the Trinity took place when Jesus took on flesh. And the towardness of the unity of the Trinity of God, the Godhead, was interrupted so that Jesus could be sent on a rescue mission to us. As I thought about that, I thought, I don't know, for those of you who are parents and you have children that live away from you, the thought of them coming home for Christmas or coming home for holidays, our first thought is that when they get here, the thing we do is we rush out and we embrace them so that we can have the towardness that we have been missing from one another restored. Can't wait to put my head against the head of my daughter and kiss her on the forehead. I can't wait to embrace my son and my grandchildren to have the the physical presence of towardness restored. Do you think that maybe this was ingrained in the consciousness of Jesus? And as we look at the story of Christianity and of Christmas, it becomes a flesh and blood reality. And Jesus, listen to this, by the time he is approaching the cross and what we refer to as his high priestly prayer that's found in John 17, listen to his words because I believe that it gives us insight into what it cost him to be born. When he says this in John 17, 5, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory. Look at this. I had with you before the world began. So this is Jesus now, and he's talking. And he's talking about how he existed with the Father and the Spirit before this all came to be. And he goes, I missed that. I missed the towardness that we have. I missed the glory that we had together. And he goes on in verse 24 of this chapter. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am. And now he's talking about those of us that respond to him. And to see my glory, the glory you have given me. And then notice this, because you loved me before the creation of the world. And we get this this sense of the personality of the unity of the triune God that has been interrupted because of our need for a savior. That he would go on a rescue mission to try to win us. Now, I would like you to think if Jesus is thinking those thoughts, since he's fully God and fully man, doesn't that change then how we look at some scripture? Imagine Jesus when he's telling the story of the prodigal son. And there's tremendous empathy in his voice as he gets to the point where he says, there came a day when the son who had been so disenfranchised, and albeit it was for a different context than Jesus' separation, But as Jesus is telling this and he says of the son, I will arise and I will go to my father and I will be back towards my father. And when he was a great way off, the father saw him and suddenly the father jumps off the porch and they are toward one another. They embrace one another. There's a unity where there had been disunity. Can you imagine Jesus after telling that story when he laid his head on his pillow that night and he said to himself, you know, father, When I told them that parable today and I thought about how the father jumps off the porch and comes running to the son who's coming home, it made me think of how much I want to see you again. Made me think 
How much I desire the glory that we had before the creation of the world. How much I miss the unity of the Spirit and the Father of us together in towardness toward each other. Father, I'm here to do your will. I'm here to show them what God is like. I'm here to make you known and all that can be known of God in the person of a man. I'm doing that for you, Father. But man, do I miss the unity that we had before the creation of the world. And then those that you give to me, I can't wait to bring home with me so that they can experience this. In our church and in our neighborhoods, we've just gone through a season where there have been several people that have died, many of them believers. And as I was thinking about this passage, it kind of changed the way that I thought about death. If we who are believers know that this unity, this towardness, that we can be in unity with God, if we understand the power of that statement, it makes death way less scary and eternity way more glory-filled. It makes even the way that we grieve for those we've lost. We sit back and there's a part of us that has to begin to rejoice that the race that they have run, when they intersected the grace of Jesus Christ, it changed them. And today they are in the towardness of the Godhead, enjoying the fullness of that. That Jesus, when he was on earth, going, I can't wait to get that back again. And when you think of it like that, it changes Christmas. When you think about the incarnation in those terms, you realize that it is incomprehensible, the expression of love that God gave to us. And frankly, as an expression, it is of infinite condescension. Lastly, this passage ends speaking of his deity. It moves from eternity to personality to a definitive statement of his deity. When he says, and the word was God. He who becomes flesh in verse 14, who always was and in his always wasness was always God. And, and now we see this little verse and it kind of wraps it together. The deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Martin Goldsmith wrote this quote. If we deny the deity of Christ as the second person of the Trinity, if we deny his incarnation, his divine human person, his redeeming work on the cross, his resurrection and ascension, then we are no longer talking about the truth that is revealed in the Bible nor a faith of the church throughout Christian history. However you may call your new religion, con religious concoction Christianity, it actually has little relationship with the Christian faith. We have in fact invented a new religion which has changed or denied every major point of the Christian faith. If you do not believe that the child in the manger was the incarnate son of God, then what you have is not a Christian faith because in the beginning was the word and the word was with God in personality and towardness and the word was God. And John begins his gospel this way so that when you read the rest of the gospel, it will make more sense to you. If Jesus isn't God, then the rest of the gospel of John doesn't make much sense. Because if you have your Bible, turn to the next page, turn to the next chapter, and look at what happens in chapter 2. Because in chapter 2, Jesus, who is now God, shows up at a wedding. And his mom says to him, we're out of the good stuff. And Jesus does a miracle. 
and turns water into wine. And people in our culture today go, do you really believe that? Do you believe all of that miraculous stuff about Jesus? Yes, we do. We do. Because in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And He was God. What do you expect God to do? And then you go on and He clears the temple. And He rearranges things. And culture says, what gives God the right to go into their temple and change things? It's like He owns the place or something. Yes, He does. He does. He owns the place. And then you get to the part where he's talking to Nicodemus, who's a religious man who has questions. And God says, you've got to be born again. And Nicodemus is blown away by this because he does not understand how he could be reinserted into his mother's womb. And Jesus said, it's not like that. I'm talking about being born again of the spirit. And in the culture in which we live, that we live today, people are going, I can't grasp that. A new birth takes place spiritually. Yes. Because if you don't get the born again stuff, then you're not in relationship with Jesus. Worship team, if you could please come. So many today say, can't we just have a Christianity that, you know, talks about the servant on the mount. You do your best. You turn the other cheek. You put some money in the Salvation Army tub when you walk out of the mall. And we call that good. No, we can't. Because we are striving to be about understanding what the Bible actually says and then bowing down beneath what it says. Even when it challenges our intellects and overturns our lives. This is what we are committed to at Grace Assembly. Being people of the word. Understanding it, living it, believing it. You move to chapter 4. Jesus interacts a woman at the well. Asks her for a drink of water and at the end of it begins to explain to her that if you drink of me, you will become a well of water springing up within you to eternal life. You move on in the gospel and Jesus interacts in Cana of Galilee with a royal official who has a son that's lying sick. He says, can you heal him? Jesus says, yes, I can. Because he's God. Chapter 5, he's healing people at the pool. Chapter 6, he's sitting down and he's taking a couple of pieces of bread and a few little fish and he's feeding thousands. And in our culture today, people will say to you and I, do you believe all of that? Do you really believe all of that? Yes, I do. I believe every single word of it. Every word of it. Why? Because in the beginning, before the beginning, before the creation of the world, was the Word. And the Word was with God in communion and towardness with one another. And the Word was God. What do you expect when God comes on a rescue mission and becomes flesh? It comes into the world with love for you. And all of this is centered around John 14, 6, which is the fulcrum of the gospel. So that Jesus can say, because of John 1, 1, he can say in John 14, 6, I am the way. I am the truth and the life. And no one comes. I want you to say that after me. No one comes. No one comes to the Father but by me. It all starts with what he began in the prologue. He's the pre-existent word. He's the light that comes in the world. 
He's the incarnate son.